Bienvenue. Hello there and welcome. Welcome to City Breaks Paris, Episode 6, Napoleon's Paris. Napoleon, of course, has left more of a mark probably on the city than any one other person, so he definitely gets an episode to himself. And this is it. And the plan for the episode is a quick biography of the great man himself, focusing particularly on his links with Paris. And then we're going to have a look at three different buildings in the city today that you can visit, all of which have very strong links to him. And they would be the Arc de Triomphe, the Invalide, and the Chateau de Malmaison. So, going back to 1769, when he was born, not a Parisian at all, a Corsican, born in the city of Ajaxo, but from a wealthy family who were able, as he grew up, to send him eventually to Paris to study at the École Militaire, no less, a building still there today, and where young Napoleon was sent to finish his education and to be trained to be an officer in the army. It's interesting to note that somebody who wrote one of his reports as he was leaving apparently put the words, he could go far if the circumstances are right. I think we have to agree, he certainly managed that. In 1785, still very young, only 16 or 17, Napoleon had to go back to Corsica because his father died, and so it was that he wasn't in Paris during the years of the revolution. He was away commanding armies and doing really well and enhancing France's reputation abroad and working his way up the military ladder. So he was an artillery commander at the Siege of Toulon in 1793. When he arrived, British troops were in control, but of course Napoleon's strategy soon saw the end of that. And in fact, so well did he do that he was promoted, still only 24, to the position of Brigadier General. Various other campaigns followed in Italy and in Egypt, and by the time he returned to Paris in 1799, the time was just right for him to impose himself in a completely different way. The city was still in chaos after the terror, but Napoleon stepped in, formed a new government, which he called the consulate, saying originally that there would be three consuls, but deciding before too long that actually he would be first consul. And so, there he was, ruling the whole country. His reputation seemed to grow and grow, the Napoleonic Code did a lot to restore order without actually getting rid of the things that people had fought for in the revolution. So, for example, appointments under him would be based on somebody's qualifications and their ability, and not on their birth or their religion. So all of that chimed with the new times, as did his road building, his building up the state, his imposition of law and order in all sorts of different ways, his setting up of many new schools, non-religious schools, so that actually anyone could get an education which hadn't been the case before. And by 1804, he awarded himself an honour, namely, he crowned himself first emperor of France. As you will know, if you listen to the episode on Notre Dame, he had in fact invited the Pope to come and crown him, but decided at the last minute that he would put the crown on his own head. That seemed to fit better with his own view of himself as definitely most important person ever. Expansion of the French Empire followed, until by 1811, it was said that France controlled much of Europe, from Spain to the borders of Russia. 1812, as you may well know, not quite so good, decided to invade Russia, and although he did get as far as entering Moscow, things went badly wrong from there on in. Defeated by the Russian winter by lack of supplies, he had to return to France. And by the time he himself got back safely, most of his army had died from the weather or they'd starved to death. And so... Other countries, spotting that he was now at a low point, turned on France and on Napoleon, and before long, in 1814, he was forced into exile on the island of Elba. 
Not actually quite the end of him. As you may know, he escaped in 1815. Parisian newspapers were quite interesting on that topic. One headline read, The monster has escaped. But another printed the headline, The conquering hero has returned. And I think you could say it was the latter opinion with which he most definitely agreed. He made a big speech on the Champ de Mars. He reclaimed the throne. He started working on a new constitution to present to the Assemblée, the Parliament. There were gun salutes, there were parades, there was an open-air mass, and it really seemed as if Napoleon was back. But only a few weeks later came Waterloo, and the end of his second period in power in Paris, which became known after that as the Hundred Days. Defeat at Waterloo really was the end for him, forced into exile again, sent a lot further away this time, to the island of St Helena, where he died six years later, in 1821. So, when it comes to visiting buildings in today's Paris, to find traces of Napoleon, I suppose we ought to start with Notre Dame Cathedral, where he had himself crowned. But I'm going to gloss over that here, because we had a description of that in episode 3 on Notre Dame. So, moving on then to the Arc de Triomphe, which is definitely very much a place where Napoleon made his mark. Characteristically, I think you could say this building was one of his many tributes to himself. He had it built after the Battle of Austerlitz in 1805. Apparently he'd promised his troops that they would go home beneath triumphal arches. And sure enough, less than a year later, on his birthday in fact, August the 15th in 1806, the first stone was laid in the building of what was to become the Triumphal Arch, or in French, the Arc de Triomphe. In fact, it wasn't finished until 1836, some 15 years after his death, and it wasn't formally inaugurated until the 15th of December 1840, when the ashes of Napoleon himself were returned to Paris from the island of St Helena, and were processed under the arch en route to burial at Les Invalides. So, the Arc de Triomphe, I suppose you could call it the ultimate symbol of French patriotism, and various dates in history across the centuries show that that's how leaders looked on it. So, Napoleon III, for example, when he made his entry into Paris in the 1850s, of course, marched under the arch, as did German troops in 1870. They'd taken over Paris at the end of the Franco-Prussian War, and to show that they were in charge and to maximise humiliation of the French who'd been defeated. Of course, they marched their troops through the archway and down along the Champs-Élysées. It's said that a few years later, bonfires were lit all along the Champs-Élysées to, as they put it, eradicate the stain. 1885 saw the funeral of Victor Hugo, a scene of mass mourning. It's thought that actually half the population of Paris came to that, and that centred around the Arc de Triomphe. It was the site for the Victory Parade in 1919, after World War I. It was, of course, from the Arc de Triomphe that General de Gaulle led the march to celebrate the liberation of Paris in 1944. And still today, you'll see it every year on TV on the 14th of July, when the military parade to end all military parades takes place to celebrate the national holiday. You'll see it at the end of the Tour de France. That finishes there. 1998, when France won the World Cup. That was the centre for public celebrations. It's definitely got a key place in the mind of every patriotic Frenchman. So, if you go to visit, what to expect? I would say the key thing is definitely to climb up to the top, because only then do you appreciate exactly its role in the middle of what's become known as the Grand Axe in Paris, in the middle of three great archways. So Napoleon himself had built the 
Arc de Triomphe du Carousel, which is down by the Louvre, and directly in line with it then, the Arc de Triomphe. Between the two, of course, the Champs-Élysées. All of that impressive enough, but in 1989, to celebrate the bicentenary of the French Revolution, it was decided to extend it even further, and to build in the opposite direction, so further out of Paris, the Grand Arche de la Défense, again directly in line with the other two, so extending the vista, if you like, from the glass pyramid at the Louvre to the Arche de la Défense, is actually an eight-kilometre-long sweep of road, which really says... We're impressive. Look at this. What a vista. Perhaps the one single most significant part of the Arc de Triomphe is the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, which is beneath the arches set into the pavement, and on which a plaque reads, Ici repose un soldat français. Here lies a French soldier, mort pour la patrie, who died for his country. A soldier then from World War I. There are a lot of other plaques and notices on the building itself and set into the pavement, recalling lots of other significant dates in French history. One for 1870, for example, proclamation of the Third Republic. One for 1918, marking the fact that Alsace and Lorraine had been returned to France after World War I. There's a plaque to mark the speech which de Gaulle made in 1940, calling for Frenchmen to rise up and join the resistance. There are sculptured reliefs all over the building, recalling battles and victories and famous generals. There's a carving called Napoleon's Triumph, showing Napoleon being crowned by victory. There's another one marking the Battle of Austerlitz, showing Napoleon on his horse, bang in the centre, of course, surveying the battle scene. In total, 174 battles are commemorated, as are over 600 generals. So it's certainly a sight to see, and if you're interested in military history or European history, I'm sure you could spend days there. Not everyone's a fan, though. The short story writer Guy de Maupassant, writing at the end of the 19th century, called it, quote, a shapeless giant on two monstrously large legs that looks as if it's about to stride off down the Champs-Élysées. But I'm sure most French people have at least some fondness for it. It's there, Trafalgar Square or Brandenburg Gate. And perhaps second only to the Eiffel Tower, it's a symbol of Paris recognised all over the world. Possibly slightly less well-known, at least by sight, is Les Invalides, but that too is a building absolutely connected with Napoleon. It wasn't built by him, it was built in the 1670s by Louis XIV, originally intended to be a hospital or a retirement home for thousands of Invalides, disabled war veterans. And in fact, even today, there is a wing of the building still used for that purpose. In Louis's day, it was also used as a storehouse, a place to keep weapons, a fact well understood by the revolutionaries of 1789, who went there before they ever went to the Bastille and were able to loot, apparently, 32,000 rifles with which to go off and cause mayhem. Today, though, its role is really as the Musée de l'Armée, so the army museum, and as a site of a church, the Église du Dôme, which is where Napoleon himself is buried. So if you go around the Musée de l'Armée, if you're, again, a fan of military history, you could be there for days, I think, because in chronological order you will find all kinds of uniforms and weapons and flags and medals and, for war from the more modern era, film footage as well. One section of this vast museum is called the Army of the Emperor, covering the period 1804 to 1815, and there you can see uniforms and weapons from Napoleonic times. You can see things like animated 
maps of some of the big battles. You can see a display of Napoleon's campaign equipment, his field chair, one of his tables, a bed that he used, his coat, hat, sword, medals. It's quite a collection. There's also something there called the farewell flag, which he flew at the Chateau of Fontainebleau just before he departed for Elba. He's said to have kissed it as he left the building. You can see in there two portraits, so one from each end of his reign, if you like, a portrait by Ingres of his coronation, Notre Dame, and then a portrait by Paul de la Roche, done in 1814, which shows the defeated Napoleon sitting alone at Fontainebleau. But I guess the main reason people go to the Invalide, usually, is to go into the Église du Dôme to see the great man's tomb. It really is quite a sight. It's a huge circular hall built on two levels. The sarcophagus is down on the ground floor and there's a massive circular balcony then all around it so you can stand on the upper floor and look down on it or you can walk down the stairs and walk round it. Quite an impressive sarcophagus. Red finished granite, six coffins, one inside the other, inside. And just the size of the thing and the way it's set in its own hall makes it very imposing. Again, not everyone's a fan. I saw it described somewhere as, quote, the most ostentatious tomb in the world, except perhaps for the Great Pyramid in Egypt. There are side rooms off the Great Hall with other famous people buried in them. For example, Maréchal Foch, the Allied commander in World War I, whose chapel seemed to me a lot more human and a lot more respectful, really. There's an effigy of his coffin being borne by a group of his soldiers, life-sized and sculpted in bronze, really rather beautiful. So those are two places in Paris, the Arc de Triomphe and the Invalide, where you certainly get a real feel for Napoleon's grandeur and his importance to the French nation. Somewhere a bit more homely, possibly a bit more personal, is the third site which I would advise visiting if you can possibly find the time. It's a little bit out of Paris, 15 kilometres away. You can get a bus from La Défense though, so it's not impossible. And it's a lovely country house called the Chateau de Malmaison, which Napoleon bought for Josephine after they married in 1800, and where they spent a lot of time together over the next ten years or so, until after their divorce. When he bequeathed it to her, she stayed on and lived in it. So it is, in a way, a house more reminiscent of her than of him, but there's lots of Napoleon to be found there. Definitely I would advise going if you possibly can. It's a lovely country mansion, built in about 1610, with one of those long, straight driveways with lovely flower beds leading up to it. Not massive, two floors high, about 18 rooms in total, formal gardens surrounded by parkland. Absolutely beautiful. And, tellingly, said to have been the house in which Napoleon himself said he could best relax. So if you go to visit, Napoleonic highlights particularly, on the ground floor, would include a room called the Salle de Conseil, which was translated into English as the council room. I think he thought it was going to be a country house to relax in. And as soon as he got there, he couldn't really relax, knew that he'd want to work as well, and gave the builders apparently 10 days to transform this into a working room. He had it decked out a bit like a military tent. It's got striped twill on the walls and some serious looking desks and tables and whatnot. It's said that in the year 1801 to 2, no fewer than 169 council meetings were held here. All kinds of important things were decided here. Bits of the Napoleonic Code, the Légion d'honneur, France's system of honours, was dreamt up in this very room. And just, I think it's next door or next door but one, 
you will find Napoleon's library, also a room that was very important to him, so much so, in fact, that he had three smaller rooms knocked together to make it much bigger and create enough space for the four and a half thousand books which he apparently owned. Five hundred of them are still there, leather-bound numbers with his monogram on the spine. A very masculine room full of wood panelling and desks and bookshelves, a hidden staircase up to his bedroom, and ceiling paintings of people like Voltaire and Homer. The other way along the ground floor corridor will bring you to, among other places, the billiard room. So it's quite nice to stand in there and imagine Napoleon having a game of billiards while making important decisions. We know from one Mademoiselle Aurelion, who was Josephine's chambermaid and wrote a diary afterwards, that Josephine was also very fond of billiards. As she wrote, quote, On leaving the table, Her Majesty used to enter the billiard room where she played one or two games, which she did very well. Next door to that is the dining room, so you can imagine Napoleon and Josephine hosting some of their important guests there. The rest of the ground floor is more Josephine's domain. There's a music room where we know she used to like to play the harp and where she used to invite musicians for concerts. So again, you can imagine Napoleon sitting there with perhaps half a mind on the music while she entertains her guests at the same time dreaming up the next scheme. Upstairs you can find the Emperor's drawing room, which has paintings on the walls of both him and of Josephine, and the Emperor's bedchamber, and then two more rooms displaying some of his mementos, sabres and ceremonial sword, and a round table called the Austerlitz table. Napoleon could never have enough mementos of battles that he'd won, and this table has a figure of himself painted in the middle, surrounded by mini-portraits of his chiefs of staff from the battle. Along the corridor a bit further is Josephine's dressing room, in which she was reputed to spend two to three hours most mornings. Next door she had a boudoir, so somewhere to while away time once she was actually dressed. And then two bedrooms, an ordinary bedchamber, said to be her favourite because it was a nice sunny room, and the much grander Empress's bedchamber, with a magnificent wooden bed covered in gold and carvings of swans and other decorations, the bed in which she died in 1814. Next door to that, an antechamber where her footman used to wait and which was the room in which her body was embalmed after she died. And the top floor of the building is given over to an exhibition on Napoleon's exile and his death. At least that's what you come across first, but a bit further on there's a section called the wardrobe, which is a place to display some of Josephine's personal things her clothes, her ankle boots, a monogrammed shawl, her opera glasses, all of this very important to her. The guidebook helpfully points out that fashion was Josephine's whole life, something on which she liked to spend huge amounts of money. We learn from it, for example, that in one year she bought, wait for it, 985 pairs of gloves, as well as more than 500 pairs of shoes and 136 dresses. You begin to realise what she was doing all that time she spent in her dressing room. So it is very much a house that remembers both of them, but definitely as you go round, you can picture, you can conjure up in your imagination all the receptions and balls and entertainments which would have been held there during their time. All of those things happening alongside Napoleon's work. It's known that he was forever summoning his ministers out there, making them come and discuss the next reforms he had in mind before hurrying back to Paris to carry out his wishes. So, three places then in Paris where you can really feel the influence of Napoleon Bonaparte, who himself had so much influence 
apart from on Europe and France and all the rest of it, on Paris. And at no point was the idea of his importance to the city of Paris perhaps better summed up than on the day of his funeral, 15th of December, 1840. His coffin was processed through the city, down the Champs-Élysées, after passing under the Arc de Triomphe, and by a roundabout route, on to the Invalides. The streets were packed to see it pass, and it must have been really quite a sight. We're told that there were statues of goddesses being carried along, there were urns with burning incense in them, banners with all the names of his victories, trumpeters, guardsmen on horseback, infantrymen marching along, a horse wearing Napoleon's own harness, banners from every département in the whole of France, and, right at the end, a funeral car, huge wheels, covered in magnificent cloths embroidered with ends and with eagles, all his symbols. Absolutely all the pomp and ceremony which could possibly be mustered. We read about the funeral in A Traveller's History of Paris by Robert Cole, and here's how he ends his description. Quote, the Invalide Chapel was packed with onlookers. The coffin was placed on an elaborate catafalque, next to which stood Louis-Philippe and various dignitaries, including the Archbishop of Paris. Joinville approached Louis-Philippe and said, Sire, I bring you the body of the Emperor of France. The king replied, I receive it in the name of France. Napoleon certainly made his mark on Paris. So he left the big things that everybody can see, the Arc de Triomphe and the Arc de Triomphe du Carousel. He left major new roads like the Rue de Rivoli. He left the Quai de Seine, the walkways along both sides of the river. He left less tangible things, such as the numbering system for the roads, still used all over Paris today. He wanted to impose order on a chaotic system, so he decreed that any road that was perpendicular to the river would be numbered from its river end outwards, and that any road that ran parallel to the river would be numbered in the same direction as the current. The Père Lachaise Cemetery, today the world's most visited cemetery, was begun in the reign of Napoleon. It was his idea. If you've ever wondered why the Louvre is so stuffed full with precious works of art, one reason is that it's full of his war booty. When Napoleon won victory somewhere, his troops would ransack churches and art galleries and send paintings back to France. The Code Napoléon, so his system of organising all kinds of civic affairs, still has its effect today in things like the French education system, which has always been very centralised. It's also been copied in many other countries all over the world particularly the former French colonies. So yes, he certainly left his mark, but knowing what we do about the man himself, it comes as no surprise that he took the trouble to write his own epitaphs. And you can see those in the Église du Dôme, so the church in the Invalides where his tomb is. If you go down the steps to the level where the tomb actually is and walk round the circular hallway, you will find inscriptions on the wall, some of which are direct quotes from the man himself. Writing about his Code Napoléon, for example, he defined it thus, Justice égale et intelligible pour tous. Justice, equal and intelligible for everybody. There's another quote in which he says he proved, even though he was busy fighting wars much of the time, that he never neglected France and its institutions, and what he called le bon ordre de l'intérieur, so good order in the country itself. He was very keen for everyone to know that he was much better than anyone who came before him, writing, My code, the Napoleonic code, because it was simple, did more good in France than all the laws which ever came before me. 
To be fair, I think a lot of people would have a measure of agreement with that, but you kind of feel someone else should have said it rather than he himself, do you not? And just in case anyone's still in doubt about how wonderful he was, here's yet another inscription said by himself and carved into the walls of the hall which contains his tomb. Partout où mon règne a passé, everywhere my reign has passed, il a laissé des traces durables de son bienfait. It's left durable traces of the good that it has done. So very keen for you to know that he'd sorted out France and he'd sorted out lots of other places in the world too. Wherever he had passed was the better for his having been there. I think we can agree that lots of people will have different views on Napoleon's attributes, on the degree to which he was successful in reforming France, reforming Paris. But we can probably all unite in agreeing that modesty was not one of his strong points. Anyway, I think it must be said that no visit to Paris is really complete without a visit to at least one of the places on which he left such a mark. So, the Invalide, the Arc de Triomphe, or the Chateau de Malmaison. And that brings me to the end of this week's episode. Looking ahead to next week, we're off to Montmartre, the hilly area to the north of the city, which is home to another of Paris's most iconic buildings, namely Sacré-Cœur. We'll certainly have a look at that, at what you can see if you go to visit, and at its links with one of the most momentous periods in Parisian history, namely the Paris Commune. And then after that, we'll delve a little into its centre as the place where artists have always been drawn to work and to live and to entertain visitors coming up from the city centre. It's surely one of the areas of the city that most visitors, however short their city break in Paris might be, try and find time for. So, I hope you look forward to that. For the moment, I'm just going to thank you very much for listening. Merci, and to look forward, hopefully, to your company next week. À la semaine prochaine. But for the moment, simply, au revoir. <laughs>